0: was uh, sitting in the first service and reflecting upon just the beauty of uh, what our team and volunteers, true artists, uh, artists of sound and of light, have, have created in order to give us a glimpse of the glory of the Lord. I am reminded though that it is just a glimpse. The Lord says that uh, in the eternal kingdom, Uh, The Lord himself will be our light. There will be a a glorified choir. So we are grateful for these glimpses uh, that through the giftedness the Spirit has given to our brothers and sisters in Christ, we get a glimpse of the glories that await, but it is only a glimpse. Can you imagine what it will be like? This morning, we're going to continue our trilogy on prayer from Matthew chapter 6 verses 5 through 13. This will be the third and concluding message on this and this three-part series on prayer I've entitled Teach Us to Pray. That's from Luke chapter 11 when one of the disciples comes up to Jesus and says, Lord, teach us to pray. I hope it's the desire of your heart to learn from Christ how to pray. In the first message On this vital passage, we covered four principles of prayer from verses 5 through 9, which are the verses immediately preceding the Lord's Prayer, and we learned that we should pray with sincerity, we should pray in secret, we should pray succinctly, and we should pray substantively. That was our first message on this passage. Then, last week, we focused on the first phrase of the Lord's Prayer, in which Jesus teaches us how to address God, and we learned that we should pray as a son. We can come with boldness and confidence into the very holy place, the throne room of God, the great King, and we can come with boldness because of the new and living way Christ opened for us through his flesh, and we can come the way only a son and a daughter can come, saying, Abba, Father thus far, we've covered two categories of instruction in this marvelous passage. We've covered the instructions on how to approach God in the prologue in verses 5 through 9. And then we've covered the instruction on how to address God in that first phrase of the Lord's Prayer in verse 9. And so today, we'll be moving on to a third category of instruction, which is the Lord Jesus' instructions on what to ask God So how to approach God, how to address God, and now finally, what to ask God. And we'll be focusing today on the six specific requests which Jesus taught us to ask for in the Lord's Prayer. And as we've discussed in both of the previous messages and spent a significant amount of time last time talking about, the first three requests are really focused on the glory of God and then the last three are focused on the needs of man. So even when we go to God in prayer, we should be God-centered, not man-centered. Christ, as Colossians 1 says, should have first place in everything, and that includes in our prayer. So we wanna first focus on the glory of God and then on the needs of man. So let's read the Lord's Prayer together, Matthew chapter 6, verses nine through 13, and notice as we read the six requests which are made. Jesus says in Matthew 6, 9, pray then in this way Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever amen we've derived our sixth principle of prayer if you remember we were going through these 12 principles of prayer and we've derived our sixth principle of prayer from the first request here in the lord's prayer which we see in that last phrase of verse 9 hallowed be thy name. And so, the sixth principle of prayer is to pray for sanctification. To pray for sanctification. The request here is, hallowed be thy name. And that English word hallowed is one that has become less common uh, in our day. This is a translation which is really carried over from the King James. Because so many millions of people have memorized the Lord's Prayer in the King James, most of the other modern translations carry over this word hallowed, which is an older English word which itself is just a transliteration of the Greek term which appears here in the original, the word hagiazo. And so that English word hallowed is derived from the Greek term hagiazo. And Hagiazu means to be honored and treated as holy. Holiness is really the root concept of this word. May your name be honored and treated and considered as holy. The key idea in this biblical term is holiness and Holiness has the idea of being separated from evil. The biblical concept of holiness is to be separated from evil. To have moral perfection, you cannot be united or combined in any way with evil. You must be separate from evil. And this is good news, that God is holy. He is separate from evil. Can you imagine a universe in which God was mixed with evil? In which he was not separate from evil? Can you imagine heaven if it was not separated from evil? There could be no hope for us if God is not holy, and by holy we mean separated from evil. But of course, the good news also reminds us of some bad news, which is that we are fallen. We are evil. And so, God, who is holy, is separated from us. As Isaiah says, your sins have made a separation between you and your God. God is holy, and we are not. And so we need the gospel, don't we? This is why the Lord Jesus came, was laid in the manger, lived the perfectly holy life that we did not live, then paid the price for sin that we deserved, granting us his righteousness, taking our sin upon himself, paying its price, rising from the dead to break its power so that we could be reconciled to our holy God. God is holy. When the prophet Isaiah sees the Lord on his throne, the angels are Continually crying out, he says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. That's what the angels are proclaiming even right now in heaven. And the Lord Jesus teaches us to pray, Hallowed be thy name. That the Lord's name would be honored on earth the way it is honored in heaven. To pray, hallowed be thy name, means to pray that God's name will never be associated with anything evil. To hallow God's name means that his name could never be associated with anything which is evil. And this has huge practical implications for us because as his redeemed people, we bear his name before a watching world. So, how we speak, how we act, how we live either hallows the name of God or dishonors the name of God. We either hallow his name or we stain his name. We either bring honor to his name or we bring shame to his name. We, as his children, bear his name and we represent him to the world. We are Christians, Christians. Therefore, we must live holy lives and we must never do anything that would soil or stain or dishonor the name of God. This is what the prayer is all about. Father, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your name be reverenced, honored, exalted, and treated as holy and sacred. So when we pray that God's name will be hallowed, we are praying that our words and our deeds will bring glory to his name and that the world will see and understand that God is holy and that they too will treat his name as sacred and holy. So to pray, hallowed be thy name, is to pray for sanctification, for growth in personal holiness that will result in God's name being reverenced in our lives and through us, to others. The earnest desire of every believer's heart must be to reverence the name of God and to lead others to reverence His name. So that's the first request in the Lord's Prayer, is that God's name would be glorified, honored, considered, sacred, and reverenced, worshiped. You know, in the Hebrew context, a person's name represented them. It represented their character and their attributes, who they really are as a person. And so here Jesus is reminding us that one of the core attributes of God is his holiness, his moral perfection, his separation from all evil. And he is calling to us, Jesus is teaching us to pray that God's name would be reverenced in accordance with who he really is. We should pray that the Father's name will be honored and reverenced. By the way, this is why taking the Lord's name in vain is such a serious sin. It is blasphemy to take the Lord's name in vain. What do people do with God's name? They use it to express disgust. Can you imagine? Something terrible happens. And people say, oh my God. That should be a term which is used at the beginning of prayer. Oh my God, my creator, hallowed be your name. And instead we take the reverence name of God and we use it to express disgust. And no, it doesn't matter if you just abbreviate it and put a smiley face emoji after it. OMG is taking the name of the Lord in vain. Christians should never do that. The only time the words, oh, my God, should come through our lips is when we are speaking to him in prayer, never when we're expressing shock, dismay, or disgust at the fallen world. We never want to take the name of the Lord and plunge it into the muck and mire of human sin. Can you imagine if I had, let's say, you know, uh, know, sometimes people put like these family names on a, you know, engraved on a wooden board and they keep it, pass it down for generations as the name of the family. Can you imagine if I took my father's name and I plunged it in a toilet? How dishonoring. That is what millions of people, including many professing believers, do on almost a daily basis with the name of God. They, something terrible happens, or someone does something sinful and shocking, and they say the words, Jesus Christ, or oh my God, taking the name of God and quite literally, in a spiritual sense, plunging it into the muck and mire of sin may it never be. May it never be with us, with you, with me. should never curse using the words God or Jesus. And we should warn others against doing it as well. It is an extremely serious sin with extremely serious consequences. My mother died of cancer in 1999, and uh, through a large portion of my childhood, she was battling cancer. She went through three rounds of chemotherapy, and each time she went through chemo, she lost her hair, and that created great difficulties for her. But she really tried to make life as normal for us kids as possible, and I'll never forget what happened one afternoon when she decided to take us and then some kids from our neighborhood to the local water park. And I was one of the littler kids, and there were some bigger kids that went along. And one of the older kids the bigger kids that went was a guy that everyone called little joe i don't know if you realize this but whenever someone in your neighborhood is called little joe or little someone he's probably the biggest kid in the neighborhood because it means his father is so huge that in comparison the kid is little but little joe was anything but little he was the biggest kid on the block for sure and we go to this swim park together and my mother took off her wig and put on a swim cap But even with the swim cap, it was pretty obvious that she was bald underneath, and we were having a good time. But a couple hours into our horror, uh, some distance away from us, an older teenage boy—looking back on it, he probably had to be around high school age—I was just a little kid at the time. An older teenage boy began making fun of my mother. (laughs) See, I'm, I'm on this streak of telling these these family stories that get me all emotional. I gotta, you know. My New Year's resolution will be to, like, not tell a personal story that makes me cry for at least a week. <laughs> but he started making fun of my mother, calling her Old baldy." We were just stunned. I, I was just a little kid. I was just stunned. But before we could react, that kid was on the floor. Little Joe. I'd never seen Little Joe move that fast. He was not one of those kids that moved real fast. He was a big kid, but he moved so fast and he just laid that guy out. Now I'm not endorsing or advocating the way that little Joe handled that situation. (laughs) Bunch of people are gonna go home and say, the pastor told us it's okay to punch people. That's that's not the point of the sermon here. (laughs) I will say there's, I'm, I'm also not saying there's never a time, but We'll, we'll we'll leave that for another sermon. <laughs> Here is the point though. If it was shocking and wrong for someone to dishonor the name of my mother, how much more shocking and wrong is it for them to dishonor the name of her creator? In the Old Testament, there was a time in which some youths mocked the prophet of God, and by mocking the prophet of God, they were mocking God, and so a bear, the Lord sent a bear to rush out of the forest and maul these youths to death. Mocking the name of the Lord is a serious thing. And while scripture does teach that vengeance is the Lord's, not ours, and so we should never take matters into our own hands, we should appropriately warn and exhort people not to blaspheme the holy name of God. People who blaspheme by taking the Lord's name in vain will face consequences which are much more severe than the ones inflicted upon that teenage boy by little Joe. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. It's one of the Ten Commandments for a reason. In all that we say and all that we do, we must bring honor and glory to our Creator. Therefore, we must speak of God with reverence, for he is holy. And the prayer of every believing heart should be that God's name would be reverenced by all, counted as holy by all. I think nothing better captures the meaning of that phrase, hallowed be thy name, than Psalm 34, 3, in which David writes, oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. That's what hallowed be thy name means. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Hallowed be thy name, O oh Lord. So the f- sixth principle of prayer is to pray for sanctification, that we would speak, live, and act in such a way which honors the name of God, which treats his name with reverence and with the holiness that belongs to him. The seventh principle of prayer is in verse 10, and that is to pray strategically. The second request is, after hallowed be thy name, is thy kingdom come. And this teaches us that we should pray strategically. God's plan is to redeem fallen man, to destroy the works of the devil, and to establish his kingdom. When Christ returns he will return to rule and to reign on this earth for a thousand years, seated on the throne of David and restoring this world to its original intent. The kingdom is coming. And Jesus teaches us to pray that the kingdom will come. Thy kingdom come. We're praying, Lord, bring the kingdom. In other words, Lord, return. Like that very last prayer in the Bible, in Revelation 22, where it says, Amen, come, Lord Jesus, come, Maranatha. Jesus teaches us to pray that the kingdom will come. And he clearly portrays it as something which will occur in the future. So one of the many reasons why I am a premillennialist and not an amillennialist or a postmillennialist is right here in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus teaches us to pray that the kingdom will come. Why would Jesus teach us to pray that the kingdom would come if it's just something spiritual or allegorical which already exists in the hearts of believers? No, this is a real kingdom, and we are to pray that it comes. The king were to pray that... The king will come to establish his kingdom and to rule and to reign. And the scripture says he will come and he will rule and reign with a rod of iron. He will rule with justice and with righteousness. He will put an end to the kingdoms of men, the rotten kingdoms of men, and he will establish a righteous kingdom, which fulfills all of those Old Testament prophecies, the promises given to Abraham and to David and throughout the Old Testament of the coming kingdom. I want you also to notice that when we ask for the kingdom to come, we're asking God to do it. This is important. We're asking God to bring the kingdom. Thy kingdom come. We're not praying, God, help us establish the kingdom. No, we're saying, God, you bring the kingdom. You establish the kingdom. When we ask for the kingdom to come, we're asking God to do it. It's not something we do, it's something he does. We don't establish the kingdom, he does. What's our role? Well, we're ambassadors of that coming kingdom. We're not the founders of the kingdom, we are ambassadors of the kingdom. We appeal to people to be reconciled to God so that their citizenship can be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God's beloved Son. We don't bring in or establish the kingdom, we preach the coming kingdom. And so I am concerned about the recent resurgence of various strains of what is called post-millennialism. There are strains of this emerging on both the extreme left and the extreme right of uh, of the political divide. And both of them are misguided. Because they wrongly assume that the kingdom of God can be established through the actions of men. Through the social or political activities of men, the kingdom of God can be established. That is false. Social and political action does not bring in the kingdom of God. Jesus brings the kingdom of God. And when he brings the kingdom of God, it will not be a gradual process. He will come riding a white horse at the head of the host of heaven, and he will put an end to the rotten kingdoms of men and establish his righteous kingdom, ruling and reigning on the throne of David. Now, does this mean that all social and political effort is useless and we should just be socially and politically passive? That's, that's not what I'm saying. We are, the scripture says, salt and light in the world. But what does salt, for example, do? Well, salt prevents decay. It slows down decay. They would take their meat and their products and wrap it in salt, and salt would slow the decay. It would preserve things a little longer. That's what we do through social and political action. We slow the decay we are a restraining influence against evil in the world like salt social and political action by christians may be used by god to slow the rot of the kingdoms of men but let me guarantee you those kingdoms are rotting only the return of jesus establishes the kingdom of god we restrain evil But we do not establish the kingdom through our social and political action. The king establishes the kingdom. He will come riding with the host of heaven, and he will rule and reign. So during his first coming, Jesus taught us to pray for the kingdom he will establish at his second coming. And God's grand strategy needs to be a core priority in our prayers. We need to pray strategically, not just tactically. Tactical prayers are focused on winning the battles we're facing right now, but strategic prayers move past the here and now to the big picture. Most of our prayers is about a very microscopic part of everything, just what's right around us right now. Little old me and my little old circle of everything I focus on this little piece, and sometimes I forget the big picture, the plan of redemption, God's glory displayed in his ultimate triumph over sin and Satan, and the establishment of a kingdom which will never end, a kingdom which will be ruled by a righteous king, the king of all kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't just pray for help in your daily battles. It's important to pray for help in the daily battles. That's the tactical prayer. Help me with my daily struggle. But don't forget to zoom out from the tactical prayer to the strategic prayer. Tactical prayer is praying for your daily battles. Strategic prayer is praying that the war will end when the king comes. Pray for the return of Christ. Thy kingdom come. And then be encouraged, because we know that Christ will return to rule and to reign. The kingdom of God will come, and what a glorious day that will be. So let's be praying strategically, "Thy kingdom come." Revelation 22:20, 20, the last prayer in the Bible, is about this. Revelation 22:20 20 says, "He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly." And then comes the last prayer recorded in the Bible. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. The eighth principle of prayer is in verse 10, and that is to pray with submission. And the next request is, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we pray, Thy kingdom come, we're saying, Lord, we want you to come and reign. And when we say, Thy will be done, we are saying, we want to serve and obey you. Thy will be done. Not my will, Thy will be done. And let it be done on earth the same way that it's done in heaven. I want you to think of how the angels, the holy angels, and the glorified saints in heaven serve and obey the Lord. It's not partial, it's full obedience. It's cheerful obedience. You know, when Katie and I were, you know, when the kids were little, we were trying to teach them what obedience really means. And we would teach them, to obey means to obey right away, all the way, and with a cheerful heart. That's what it means to obey obey right away, all the way, and with a cheerful heart. That's how the inhabitants of heaven obey the Father. That's how we should obey here on earth. So saying thy will be done is a prayer of submission, an affirmation that we want to know and do the will of the Father. It's saying that we want our obedience to be so full, so complete, so immediate, and so cheerful that it would be comparable to the way the host of heaven obey the Lord Hendrickson comments, quote, It is the ardent desire of the person who sincerely breathes the Lord's Prayer that the Father's will shall be obeyed as completely heartily and immediately on earth as this is constantly being done by all the inhabitants of heaven. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, may this disobedience which occurs on earth end May your will be done on earth the way it is done in heaven. Is that the prayer of your heart? Do you desire to know, obey, and do the will of God as faithfully and as fully and as joyfully as the holy angels and the glorified saints do in heaven? And do you desire that others will know and do the will of God here on earth as it is done in heaven. Well, after the three requests related to the glory of God, the next three requests are for the needs of man. And the ninth principle of prayer is that we should pray for sustenance. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. I want you to note that of all six requests, this is the only one which has anything to do with physical needs. Of six requests, All are spiritual. This is the only one which is physical, and it is quite limited in scope. Just our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. I want you to think through the wording here. Give us this day our daily bread. The first word there is give. Give us this day our daily bread. In other words, daily bread is not something you deserve, it's something you're given. This is particularly hard for men to grasp. You know, most men, they, they, you know, they want to be good providers for their families. That's respectable. It's actually commanded in Scripture. But often men are tempted by pride to think that it's their own intellect or their own strength that enables them to provide, and they forget that the source of all things is not them, it is God. Men, you are not the source of your family's provision. You are just a means through which God provides. Give us this day our daily bread. It is God who sends the sunshine and rain that the wheat needs to grow. You want daily bread? Well, you can't produce the sunshine and the rain. You need to ask God to give it. It's God who gives you the strength and ability to work so that you can have the funds needed to purchase bread. You do realize, of course, that your intellect and your physical strength can be taken from you in an instant. My sister Kendra was here over Thanksgiving. When she was 16, she was in a rollover car accident, and many things were taken from her in an instant. So men, lest you be filled with pride over your physical strength or your intellect and and boast thinking that you are the provider... Remember, it is God who gives you all of that. What do you have that you haven't received? So don't boast as if you had not received it. It is God who either prevents or allows the famines, the breakdowns of supply chains and catastrophes, which can so easily prevent even the hardest working man from having something to eat. So we're told to pray. Because your next meal, whether you realize it or not, is something God grants to you. He gives to you. Give us this day our daily bread. Notice the words this day. Give us this day our daily bread. Later on in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is going to teach us in verse 34, not to worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So we are to pray, give us this day our daily bread, and not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow we'll ask God for that day's bread, one day at a time. Pray for today's bread, leaving tomorrow's needs for tomorrow. Now Jesus is not here condemning financial wisdom, but he is condemning financial worry. He's not condemning financial planning, but he is condemning financial panic. Don't worry about tomorrow. You have zero ability to control what happens tomorrow. Zero. You can't control what will happen tomorrow. Ask the folks when the tornadoes rolled through. Could they, the day before, by worrying, have done anything to change what happened tomorrow? Neither can you. So don't worry about it. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Worry about Today and trust God with the future. You have to trust the future to the only one who has control over it, and that's God. Not your financial advisor, not your 401k, not your employer, not the US government, not the printer in the treasury, God. Notice the words also, our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. We are not to ask for more than we need, but only for what we need day by day. There's a verse in Proverbs which is important. Proverbs 30, verses 8 through 9 says, keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion. That I not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. Just asking God for what we need, nothing more. What we need day by day by day. Are your prayers filled with covetousness and greed and envy or is your prayer filled with contentment? Lord give me today my daily bread. Paul says if we have food and clothing with this we'll be content. Do your prayers demonstrate contentment with daily bread? Next principle of prayer is to pray with sorrow. Verse 12, pray with sorrow for sin. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We should pray with sorrow for sin. The Greek term used here is aphelotes. If you remember, we talked about aphelotes when we were talking about the mission statement because in Romans 1, Paul says, I have an obligation to preach the gospel. And that word obligation is the exact same word used here, aphelotes. I have a debt to preach the gospel. I have an obligation to preach the gospel, Paul says. And here, Jesus teaches us to pray that God would forgive us for our aphelites, our debts, our unmet obligations, our unfulfilled responsibilities. The Bible teaches that there are two ways we can sin. We can sin actively by committing evil deeds, or we can sin passively by omitting good deeds. You can sin by what you do, and you can sin by what you fail to do, because the Bible is not just full of thou shalt nots. The Bible is full of thou shalts, and you need to obey the Lord. When he says, don't do it, you should not do it. When he says, do it, you need to do it, and a failatase is an unmet responsibility to God. It's when he says, thou shalt, and you don't do it. You have an unfulfilled responsibility, an unmet obligation to God or to others. You are to love your neighbor as yourself. When you don't do that, you have a aphelotes, an unmet responsibility. You are to love your wife. If you don't do that, you have an unfulfilled responsibility. As members of the church, we are to love one another. If we don't do that, we have an unfulfilled responsibility. We are to give glory and honor to the Lord. When we don't do that, we have an unfulfilled responsibility. We are loaded with a aphelotes, with debts. Jesus asks us, teaches us to ask for forgiveness. Forgive us, Father, our debts. So much I should have done and did not do. So many times where I chose myself over God, myself over others, and I failed to do that which I was required to do I withheld love when I needed to give it. I withheld service when I should have given it. Oh God, forgive my debts. Jesus then adds a phrase that reminds us that it is hypocritical to ask God to forgive us if we are unwilling to forgive others. He says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Those who have unmet obligations to us, Your father didn't give you the love that you deserved. Do you forgive that unmet obligation? Your mother didn't do for you what you think she should have. Will you forgive her for that unmet obligation? Jesus is connecting our prayer for God to forgive us for our unmet obligations to our willingness to forgive others for their unmet obligations. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Whenever we pray for God to forgive us, it should remind us of our need to forgive others. So we should pray with sorrow for our own sin and with grace towards the sins of others. Let me ask you this. Would you want God to forgive you with the same measure of grace that you forgive others? Do you want God to hold on to your unmet obligations the way you are holding on to the unmet obligations of others? You know, as a pastor, you kind of realize that there's, people can be on, you know, kind of either in line with this text or not in line with this text. Sometimes, you know, people come and, you know, they, something that happened or didn't happen in the church disappoints them. You know, they, they realize that the church failed them in some way. They weren't taken care of or loved or prioritized. And they say, you know, my brothers and sisters in Christ didn't meet their obligations to me. No one called me or no one visited me or no one helped me. And there's this sense of of being wronged. There's a phalatase towards me, an unmet obligation towards me. And you know what? Usually they're right. Usually there was a, a failetase. There was a failure on the part of the body of Christ to care for one of its members. And for that, as a congregation, we need to ask God to forgive us. Forgive us for our a failetase, our unmet obligations. Sometimes when people are talking about the a failetase of others, I wonder how often it, Dawns on them that they also have a felites. Sometimes the sad reality is that no one called or visited or helped them, but they haven't called or visited or helped anyone either. We are told by Christ to pray not only that our own unmet obligations would be forgiven, but He reminds us that we need to forgive the unmet obligations of others. Pray with sorrow for sin and with grace towards those who sin against us. Eleventh principle of prayer is in verse 13, which is to pray for shepherding. Do not lead us into temptation is the sixth and final request. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What does this mean? The words are familiar to you, but what does it mean? Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I want to just kind of dive into this a little bit with you. In Greek, there is not a separate word for trial and temptation. There's one Greek term which is used for both of those concepts. It's the word perasmus. And so in some contexts, it means a trial or testing, and in other contexts, it means a temptation. I want to walk you through this a little bit. In James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, we see very clearly, as well as in many other passages, that God sometimes does lead us into situations where our faith will be tested. James 1, 2 through 4 says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. That's Perasmas, the exact same term used in Matthew 6 in the Lord's Prayer. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various perasmas trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Sometimes God allows trials in our lives to produce endurance in us, and endurance, James says, has a perfect result. It's a good thing, so consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various perasmas, trials. As hard as this is for us to accept, the testing of our faith is a good thing, for trials refine our faith like fire refines gold. You know, the gold... Doesn't like the fire. It's not a pleasant experience, but it is the fire which purifies the gold and increases its value. First Peter chapter one, verses three through seven talks about this. It begins with worship. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Glorious. Listen to the next words. In this you greatly rejoice. Again, glorious. Even though now for a little while if necessary you have been distressed by various trials. Again, same term. Pirasmus. Even if now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Well, why? Why does God allow us to be distressed by various trials? Verse 7 explains. He says, So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ." And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and, and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Your, this testing refines your faith like gold, and that results in praise, glory, and honor. You glisten like refined gold because of these trials. This is a perfect result of trial and testing. And we should rejoice in it. So the word pirasimus used in Matthew 6 can mean trial, but depending on context, it can also mean a temptation. So which meaning is in view in Matthew 6, 13? Well, we know from the following context in James chapter 1 that God does not tempt anyone ever. The same passage where James says, consider it all joy when you face various trials, goes on to discuss temptation. He says in verse 12, "'Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, "'for once he has been approved, "'he will receive the crown of life "'which the Lord has promised to those who love him. "'Let no one say when he is tempted, "'I am being tempted by God, "'for God cannot be tempted by evil, "'and he himself does not tempt anyone. "'But each one is tempted when he is carried away "'and enticed by his own lust. "'Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, "'and sin, when sin is accomplished, "'it brings forth death.'" Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. See, temptation is not from God. Good and perfect things are what comes down from God in whom there is no variation or shifting of shadows. So, we know that God does not tempt. Temptations come from the flesh, the world, and the devil. So, what does Matthew 6, 13 mean and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The explanation is in the sentence. Do not lead us in temptation, but deliver us from evil. The word evil there appears in the masculine in Greek, and there is also a Greek article used. And so along with most scholars, I believe that verse 13 is speaking of Satan, of the evil one. Deliver us from the evil one. I think the NIV correctly translates this. Deliver us from the evil one. Satan is the source of evil. So when we pray, deliver us from evil, we're praying for deliverance from the power of Satan, who is the tempter. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In other words, don't, Lord, allow us to fall into a trap of the devil. Don't let us fall into one of his schemes. Jesus is teaching us to pray that God would lead us away and out of any trial which Satan could successfully use to tempt us. It's saying, God, please deliver us from Satan's schemes and his snares. In other words, guide us, O great shepherd. This is prayer that the good shepherd would lead and guide us so that we won't fall into any traps laid for us by the devil. We are sheep, and like sheep, we can easily stumble and bumble into an ambush. An ambush of the adversary, of the tempter. So we need shepherding. So pray for shepherding. We need the Good Shepherd to lead and guide us. Only He knows how to lead us through the minefield of this world and bring us safely to His heavenly kingdom. Good Shepherd, help us, guide us, deliver us from the evil one. The twelfth principle of prayer is to praise God for His supremacy. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever this ancient postscript to the lord's prayer reminds us that it's all about god not us from him and through him and to him are all things romans 11:36 says so to him be the glory forever amen we end our prayers as the early church did with worship praising god for his supremacy and that brings us to the end of our journey 12 principles of prayer pray with sincerity Pray in secret, pray succinctly, pray substantively, pray as a son, pray for sanctification, pray strategically, pray with submission, pray for sustenance, pray with sorrow for sin, pray for shepherding, and then praise God for his supremacy. In this passage, the Lord has already answered a prayer the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. And in answer to that prayer, he has taught us how to pray. And now we must practice what he has preached. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven those who have debts against us. And lead us not into into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.